Thank you for joining us again this week on Strange Pathways. I have had just a wonderful week, had a great time of it, just absolute blast playing with the cats, playing with the dogs. I have to do a ton of editing on this. 90% of my editing is because of my stumbling in my speech, but a good 10% is my cats just being absolute jerks. And they are, but I love them so. This case that we're going to discuss, it, it, it kind of fascinates me. More so than other cases. I'm, I'm actually familiar with the area that these gentlemen got lost in. Oroville, California. My father, I had an older father. My father was born in 1918. My father was part of what was called the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps. It was a Depression-era program. Look it up. Interesting program. But these gentlemen got lost in, in that area. And things just got weirder and weirder and weirder the more the case went on. These are the men that came to be known as the Yuba County Five. They were... Young men from Yuba City, California. And all of them had mild intellectual disabilities. I don't want you to think that these were people who were incapable of taking care of themselves. Far from it. Uh, For a time, I worked as a DSP. And I worked with individuals, some more severe than others. But a lot of these people were very, very capable, just needed a little extra push in their lives. These these five men, uh, Bill Sterling, who was at the time 29, Jack Hewitt was 24, Ted Wire was 32, and Jack Madruga were 30. Uh, Gary Mathias, the fifth, was 25. Mathias, Mathias, just to give you a little bit of a background on him, Matthias was in the United States Army. He was stationed in West Germany in the early 1970s. Uh, he, he developed drug problems. He had been diagnosed with schizophrenia, and this, this led to him being discharged. He began treatment at the local Yuba City Mental Hospital, and he, it, was, it was touch and go there for a while. He was... Nearly arrested twice, he suffered from psychotic episodes that landed him in the local Veterans Administration Hospital. But things got a little bit better. He, was, he, he became close friends with, with the four other men. And they, they either had... They, a lot of them were classified as what was called slow learners. Each of these men, though, they lived with their parents, so they ended up being called the boys. They loved sports. They, they played basketball together. They, they were part of, the, of a team, a basketball team, uh, for the mentally handicapped called the Gateway Gators. This is going to take us to February 25th. 
1978. The Gateway Gators, they're, they're playing their first game in a week-long tournament. And the winners would get a free week in Los Angeles. The, the five men laid out their uniforms, asked their parents to wake them up on time, and they drove to Chico. I've been to Chico. Chico is just a wonderful town. If you get the chance, if you're ever in Chico, get over to the Bidwell Mansion. Absolutely gorgeous mansion. Uh, take the tour, if they still do the tour. It was glorious. Now, of these, of these five, five boys, Madruga is, and Matthias, they're the only ones who have driver's license. So they drive them north. 50 miles to Chico uh, in a 1969 Mercury Montego. They had light coats on. It wasn't, it wasn't super hot. It's California. It wasn't super hot, but wasn't, wasn't, wasn't cold either. They, the Davis team won the game. The group gets back into Madruga's car and they drive from the Chico State Campus to Bears Market in downtown Chico. Have I been there? I don't remember. Maybe. They bought snacks, sodas, a couple of cartons of milk, and this is just before 10 o'clock. And the clerk remembers this because she was kind of she was kind of angry that this large group of people came in so close to closing, and it made her a little bit late that night. This was the last time that they'd ever be seen alive. The parents stayed up that night to make sure that their children, even though they're adults, their children had returned. Whenever the men didn't come back by the morning, the police are notified. So they instantly spring into action. Uh, the police begin searching along the route the men took to Chico, and they find no sign of them. But a Plumas National Forest Ranger, a few days later, tells tells the investigators, hey, yeah, I, I saw that Montego parked along the Orville Quincy Road in the forest on February 25th, the night. Uh, he didn't think it was really that big of a deal at the time because a lot of the residents go up that road to go cross-country skiing. I've been in those mountains. We're going to get back to that a little bit later. But I've been in those mountains. In fact, I want to move back to those mountains. I currently live in Pennsylvania. But my wife and I, we do want to move to the mountains of Oroville. We've even got like a little place picked out. We're just really hopeful that, you know, the fires that are going through there right now, terrible as they are, we, we hope that it doesn't destroy the place that we're looking at. We hope that the drought there alleviates and our, our hearts go out to anybody who's lost property, lost lives, lost loved ones because of that situation. It's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. The forest ranger reads the missing person's bulletin, recognizes the car, and reports it to the deputies on February 28th. They get up there, they take a look inside the car. 
There are wrappers, empty cartons and cans, programs from the basketball game, a map of California. This car, though, is far off any route to Yuba City. They're about 70 miles away from Chico. They they don't know what they were doing up there. The only thing that they can think of is that these men got lost. But you would think if they got lost, like like the map, the map would be in like some disarray. But but the map of of California that they have, the road map, neatly folded. These men drove up on a winter night to a very high elevation in a remote forest without any extra clothing. Madruga's parents even said he didn't like the cold weather, would have never been up in those mountains. Sterling's father had taken his son fishing there once. Sterling hated the trip, absolutely despised it. In fact, he hated the trip to that area so much that any other time Sterling's father would go there, he'd stay at home. Just would not go. Which is kind of interesting in itself. Right? Where his where he would end up disappearing, most likely dying. He ends up hating the place so much that he won't even go there with his dad. The police couldn't figure out why they'd abandoned the car. They they reached 4,400 feet in elevation. And yeah, the car had become stuck in the snowdrifts. The snow was not so deep, though, that one man could have sat behind the wheel and the other four could have pushed. They could have gotten it out easily. Gas tank was a quarter full. Whenever the police hotwired the car, they had to hotwire it because the keys were missing. But the police hotwired the car, started immediately. Started immediately. So the car is not broken down. They, they really go over this car with a fine tooth comb. The underneath of the car had no dents, gouges, not even mud scrapes. They, the car itself had a low-hanging muffler. And there wasn't, there wasn't any scrapes on that. So, whichever one of them drove this car, they were very, very careful with it. They search the area as best they can. There were severe snowstorms that day. Two days later, the searchers themselves nearly got lost. They had to call it off for now.
the police throw out a request to the public. Can you tell us? Have you seen these men? They get a ton of reports. Oh, we've seen them here. We've seen them there. Most of them, though, were quickly thrown out, except for two. There was a man, Joseph Schwanz of Sacramento. He he goes to the police and goes, yeah, I kind of accidentally spent the night of the 24th and the 25th near the Montego. I, I'd driven up that road. I have a cabin up there. And I wanted to check the snowpack because we're going to do a, a ski trip with the family in a couple of, uh, of weekends. So at around 5.30 p.m., he'd gotten his car stuck in the snow. Remember, he's only one person though, right? Getting, getting your car unstuck with five people is a much easier process than whenever it's just yourself. Schwanz gives it his all though. And then he goes, oh God, my chest, my arm. And he goes, I'm having a heart attack. He realizes that he's having a heart attack his car stuck. He's alone. So he does the only thing he can. He gets back into the car and keeps the engine running. Gives himself some heat. Six hours later, he's still in that car. He's still in incredible pain. He looks up in the rearview mirror and he sees headlights coming from behind him. He sees the car parked behind him. The headlights are on and there are a group of people around it. One of which seems to him to be a woman holding a baby. He yells for help. They stop talking. They hear him. They turn their headlights out. Nothing. A little bit later, he he looks behind him again. He sees flashlights and he calls to them. A little bit later on, there's a pickup truck and it parks about 20 feet behind him briefly and then just drives on down the road. Now remember, he's in a lot of pain. I don't know if you've ever been in that amount of pain. I've been in, I've been like kidney stones, gallstones. I've had that kind of pain. And you will, you will pass out. It's hard to take, take account of time. You will have hallucinations. There was, there was one time, little side note here. I was passing a gallstone and I'm in the bathroom. I'm on the toilet. My eyes are closed. And even though I know better, I get the feeling that there's nothing else outside of my bathroom. My entire universe is just the bathroom. And just to the right of me, sitting on my sink, is a falcon. I know it's not there. I'm not even looking at it. My eyes are closed, but I can sense a falcon looking at me. Pain does weird things to the human mind.
Schwann's car runs out of gas. But he's feeling a little bit better. He walks eight miles down the road. Finds a lodge. The manager drives him back home. They actually pass the abandoned Montego at this point. Gets checked out. Doctors go, yes, you, you have had a heart attack. There was another report from a woman who worked at a store in a little tiny town called Brownsville, about 30 miles from where the car had been abandoned. On March 3rd, this woman saw the flyers and saw that there was, and this is an odd number, the reward was uh, $1,215. That's the reward the families had put up for the information about their, their, their children. This woman tells deputies that four, not five, four of them had stopped at the store in a red pickup truck two days after their disappearance. The owner of the store said, yeah, yeah, I saw them too. Two of the men, she identifies them as Hewitt and Sterling. They're in a phone booth outside. The other two go inside. The police took her account very seriously. The two men that go inside were Wire and Hewitt. They they come in, they buy burritos, chocolate milk, soft drinks. On June 4th, most of the snow is melted. And a group of motorcyclists went to a trailer maintained by the Forest Service at a campsite off the road about 20 miles from where the Montego had been found. They look up, they see the front window broken out. They open the door and they are overcome with the stench of the decaying body inside. The body was later identified as wire. So the searchers returned. They followed the road between the trailer and the side of the Montego. And the next day, they find remains that they would identify as Mandruga and Sterling on opposite sides of the road, about 11 and a half miles from where the Montego had been. Sterling's body had been partially eaten by animals. Only bones remained. They were scattered over a small area. From what they were able to gather of the bodies, it kind of showed that they died of hypothermia. Two days later, Jack Hewitt's father, his own father, finds his son's spine under a manzanita bush, two miles northeast of the trailer. His shoes and jeans nearby, that, that's what they used to identify the body. And the next day, a deputy sheriff found the skull downhill from the bush. This would be confirmed by dental records to be Hewitt's. Matthias, though, no trace has ever been found of Matthias. Let's go back to the trailer, though. Wire's body was wrapped in eight sheets, including the head. His autopsy showed that he had died of a combination of starvation and hypothermia. He had lost 
100 pounds. He only weighed 200 pounds. The beard on his body was long enough that it suggests he lived 13 weeks past whenever he was lost. His feet were frostbitten, almost gangrenous. There were some personal effects sitting on the table next to Wire's body. A wallet with cash, a nickel ring with Ted engraved on it, a gold necklace, his gold watch without its crystal. But the Wire family looked at the watch and went, yeah, that's not his. There was no fire had been set in the trailer's fireplace. There was a ton of matches. There were paperback novels that they could use to start fires. There was heavy clothing in the house that could have kept the men warm. There were a dozen sea ration cans from a storage shed outside. They'd been opened and eaten. But the locker in the same shed, which had even more dehydrated foods, enough to keep five men alive for a year, had not even been opened. Another shed had a heating system. There are a ton of theories as to what happened to the Yuba County Five. But I have my own. I've been in those mountains. Whenever I went to those mountains, I was actually escorted with my family by the former sheriff of Oroville. A man whose name I can't remember now. He owned like a little drive-you-around travel service in Chico. For some reason, Rusty. Rusty comes almost immediately to mind. And my dad, my dad thought that he looked like Rock Hudson. This is going to sound weird now in today's society. But you have to remember, this was 1984. My dad looks at, we're going to call him Rusty, because that's, that's what I remember. My dad looks at Rusty and says, I want to go up to the old Civilian Conservation Corps camp. And Rusty looks at him and goes, why the hell do you want to go up there? My dad says, I, I worked up there as a kid. I was part of the CCC. And he goes, okay, I'll take you up. But if we get stopped, keep quiet, stay in the car, and let me do the talking. They grow marijuana up in these hills, and they will kill you. Doesn't that seem weird in today's society? They grow marijuana up in these hills and they will kill you. But we are talking about 1984. We're not talking about 2021. We're talking about the year 1984. Where marijuana growers would kill a person that was trespassing. Even, not even trespassing, driving on the road near their property. We were driving. And sure enough, 
Two men step out from the forest line, stand in front of the car. Rusty stops the car. It was a station wagon. And he gets out. And he goes and talks to the men. It was a very warm summer. It was around 100, 110. And he goes, hey, you guys know me. I'm just up here showing this family the old CCC camp. They talk for a little bit. And then they let us go. But what if? What if we wouldn't have had Rusty? Would we have befallen the same fate as the Yuba County Five? I honestly believe so. In my heart of hearts, what I think happened to these men was what could have happened to us. I think that they got in there. Matthias got killed. The other four panicked, ran off, found the shed. One of them had a breakdown. The other, the other three don't know what to do and they walk off. Breaks my heart. Our next tale takes us from where I want to live to where I'm currently living, Pennsylvania, all the way to Strasburg in Lancaster County. These three Amish men are working out in a field, and they look look down, down to the neighboring farm, and they see this very odd-looking man. Yelling, screaming, jumping. These three Amish men, they look a little bit closer. And they kind of get shocked because this, this man, his arms, his legs, his face, they just seem a little different. A little more towards the animal side of things. He has coarse, dark hair on his arms and legs. His face is dark-colored. And, strangely enough, he's wearing a tattered pair of old-style boxer shorts. This, This thing approaches closer and he's screaming something but they can't understand what he's saying the men panic they run towards their house and this this creature is right behind them one of the Amish men duck into the dairy barn and the other two run into the house there's an elderly Amish woman who had been in her garden and she comes out and and goes well what's going on this man creature whips its head around, stops running, looks at her, sits down on the grass, 
and just kind of rocks back and forth and stares at the sky. After a bit of time, the men come out of the house and they slowly kind of walk over to this creature and they try to talk to it. But it's just kind of like sitting there staring and mumbling. And it has a horrible stench. The creature stands up, kind of looks around, and starts to walk towards the barn. And the three Amish men and the lady are just standing there. As this creature walks towards the barn, they're looking at it and it starts to fade away. And it completely disappears right before it reaches the barn. That's it. That's the encounter. He just fades away. Pennsylvania has a huge amount of Bigfoot sightings. I've personally seen two. Never very long. The one, I I didn't even get to see it for a full second. The other, I got a pretty good glimpse at it. Very good. But around the area where I grew up, the Amish would tell a tale of this big hairy monster man that would walk through the cornfields at night. They would call it the corn monster. And my older brother kind of believed in the corn monster, but he stopped believing whenever my dad made fun of him. I probably didn't help me. <laughs> Me, uh, me as a child, I was serious. I just, I just drew this giant stalk of corn with, with feet and gave it to my brother. I didn't really mean anything nasty by it, but my brother had had enough. My brother's not really a nice man. I just kind of thought it was some BS. Until a few years ago, I met a woman who had lived on the other side of the mountain from me. And without me prompting her, without me asking her about it, she tells me the tale of the corn monster. She tells me how it's this tall, ape-like creature with fur gray like a mouse. Which is what I saw. You usually think of like Bigfoot, wild men, being maybe brown, 
black haired, off chance red. No, what I saw, what she saw was gray, dark gray. And she would tell me how she would leave a big bucket of peaches. And she would watch this, we're going to call it Bigfoot. She would watch this Bigfoot get down on its belly and crawl towards the peaches, reach out, grab one and eat it. It wouldn't get up to its feet until it would reach the wood line and then walk away like a human. Thank you very much for joining us this week on Strange Pathways. Do me a favor, head on over to the Facebook. Join us over there. We're going to have photos of the tales that we talked about today. Also, over on YouTube, click like, hit subscribe, hit that little bell thing. Not even sure what it does, but supposedly it does nice things. Tell your friends about this podcast. You know you have a friend that would love this podcast. This podcast was was kind of created to mimic the, the time I had whenever I was a child. My dad loved the paranormal. He loved the odd, the strange. And whenever him and some of his friends of his would spend the night at their cabin in the woods. I would always be curled up on the bed, falling asleep, blanket tight around me, the lights really dimmed, hearing the wonderful, scary stories. I I hope I can mimic just a fraction of that for you with this podcast. Thank you so much for joining me again this week. Take care of yourselves and each other. 